Welcome to the Die Hard Minute, where Movies by Minute hosts talk about the 1988 John McTiernan-directed movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rick from the Mad Max Minute podcast. And I'm Julia, also from the Mad Max Minute podcast. And today we're talking about Minute 104, which begins with power to the city grid being cut, and it ends with Theo finally entering the vault. When we last left off yesterday, Walt was down in the manhole, and he was on his radio talking to Central, and they had just called him crazy, and he had acknowledged how insane this request to shut off Grid 212 sounded to them. And here, Walt continues talking to Central. He says, I got a big problem down here. Shut it down. Shut it down now. And... He does. The central guy does. Mm -hmm. Just because Walt has a big problem? Yeah. I don't don't understand. I, I do not understand why this guy would shut off an entire grid of about 10 city blocks because Walt said so. Yeah. Walt's just a city worker. It makes no sense whatsoever. I mean, we've already been through the whole authorization issue and how important that is. So this other guy who's now involved that we've never met is also doing stuff without authorization. Mm -hmm. I don't get why people are willing to do that. The only way I can stomach it is to consider it just cinematic shorthand. Yes, absolutely. The idea that Walt could get on the radio and explain... Listen, I got the FBI here. They're breathing down my neck. We got a terrorist situation in Nakatomi. You know, we've got to cut off the power because they say so. But in my time working with radios and speaking officially from point to point, a lot of the times spelling out exactly what's wrong is usually a bad thing. Because when you're dealing with radios and frequencies, sometimes people can be bored and dial into your radio frequency. When I was a security guard at a local amusement park a couple of summers, we had a very strict rule about using a code system of saying a situation was a a D6 or a F12 or something like that because we were right on a lake. And of course, around a lake, you get a lot of more well-to-do, oftentimes retired very bored people, and they would get their own radios, and they would try and tune into our signal, and they would listen. And if we had a situation where something like, I don't know, a skunk bit a kid, and we had to call in the ambulance or something like that, or the animal control unit or something crazy, people that are bored and listening on the radio will say, oh, hey, I've got a local journalist friend, and they might want to run a story in the news about how someone went to this amusement park and got bit by a skunk. And that's not the publicity that you necessarily want. And so I don't think the idea that Walt getting on the radio to sit bell out exactly why they need the power cut would be very good in a city where everyone is listening. Uh, I have a question about the skunk. Is that a real world example? No, that's a fabricated one. I don't think we ever had any animal bite situations. A lot of the times it was just very mundane stuff, moving between areas, going on break. I don't think I ever had to deal with people that were all that bad. I think I got yelled at by customers from time to time, but I was always in the right, so... It was never a big deal. Yeah. Something I find interesting in Walt's language, between yesterday and today, he never invokes the FBI at all. Mm-mm. Which he absolutely should have. Exactly. The only authority that Walt has is that there's an FBI guy standing in front of him telling him to do it. And Central doesn't know that. No. Which, if, if Special Agent Johnson had sent somebody to Central... 
then the power would already be out for crying out loud. Mm -hmm. They're just making it so hard for themselves. They, they really are. Because in a real world situation, which this, this whole thing would have gone different in a real world situation, but let's say it went the same up until Walt got on that radio. In a real world situation, they would have had to keep fighting to get Central to turn off the power. That guy sitting there at the desk at the radio was never going to do that in the real world. Yeah. So this arguing and trying and convincing and threatening should have gone on much longer than it does. They caught a lucky break that this one guy was just willing to throw up his hands and say, okie dokie. Yeah. Say, <laughs> Walt, this is on you. I'm not taking responsibility for it. And then he presses the button. And the next thing we get is the Nakatomi building just slowly going dark. Yes. As the power drains out of the grid. Yes. And one little thing is that when the camera is still on Walt, there's an office building behind him that is already completely dark. <laughs> well, I want to work for that company because they don't force you to come into work for a Christmas Eve party. Right. Right. I find that very hard to believe that nobody is working Christmas Eve night in that building. Very hard to believe. <laughs> we see the lights go out outside the building, and then we take another trip inside to the bathroom that John is hiding in as the whole room just goes dark until the automated light system comes on with a sweet female voice who says emergency lighting activated and she keeps repeating that for like the rest of the inside scenes <laughs> i'm a little bit confused by this automated voice mm -hmm. i get the backup lighting lots of large buildings have backup lighting in large buildings like that you have to because you're far there's many many places in there that don't have access to outside windows so for the safety of its inhabitants there has to be emergency lighting but first of all it's not usually that good it's just enough to leave the building safely yeah it's also not spoken like that i've never been in a building it's weird with an automated voice like that yeah which speaks to the sophistication of the nagatomi building mm -hmm. so i'm gonna go back to it again why didn't the vault have backup power yeah there are a lot of things in this minute the lights the computer that displays the status of the vault yeah, has, still has power. The lights inside the vault still have power. Have power. So, but the door loses power. It yeah. It does not make any sense at all. So, <laughs> especially with the voice, the voice is kind of a kicker for me. Yeah. That this extra step has been taken to show how sophisticated they are with this voice that says, backup lighting activated. And Who they, is that for? Right. I don't know. Okay, typically, when you have a, an automated voice, it is for the benefit of those individuals that are blind. So that they are notified, you know, please step away from the tracks. The train is arriving. That sort of thing. So that people that don't have the use of their eyes are aware of it. I don't see the benefit to a blind person of emergency lighting. Other than the notification that the building has lost power. That's the only possible reason I can think of why they would have an automated voice say that the emergency lighting is activating. I suppose that it could be a safety thing because the, the train warning, your example, is a safety issue that mm -hmm. everybody needs to back away 
Because they have the line that you're not supposed to step across, but people do anyways. So it's a reminder that, okay, a train is coming. That line needs to be a hard and fast rule now. Yeah. Get behind it. So it's a safety issue. So I suppose that it could be a safety issue here that, hey, we're on emergency lighting. Things aren't going to be as well lit as they would otherwise be, except that doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. Things seem to be as well lit as they were before. That's another thing about So I don't know. Like... Oh, lighting is always screwy in movies. Yeah. Whether it's a day for night shot or way more light in a low light situation than you would normally have. It's... Right. Unless you're George Miller and then your middle of the night scene is really quite pitch black. Yeah. And you can't see what's going on at all. So we would all fall in that hole. Yeah. <laughs> so John McClane. I would like to think that he's gotten most of the glass out of his foot. That he's gone through that process long enough that he doesn't have any more little bits grinding around in there. But he notices the light goes out. The emergency light comes up. He grabs his radio and he says, Al, Al, talk to me. What's going on here? And Al is very quick to throw the FBI under the bus. He says, ask the FBI. They've got the Universal Terrorist Playbook and they're running it step by step. Yeah, I'm very curious about this statement. It's very sarcastic and a little spiteful. He says it as if he knows that this terrorist playbook is playing directly into Hans's hands. Mm -hmm. That it's exactly what he wants and what he needs to make this plan work. Except that Al has no way of knowing that. So I don't really see an explanation for this tone that he is taking. Except that, as I'm saying that, I realize that it's a whole police force versus FBI thing. Yeah. He's saying it that way because he is a cop and it's the FBI that are doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Talked myself into an explanation for that one. The thing that I like about this statement is that Reginald Val Johnson sort of name drops a show that is featured in the ABC TGIF lineup a full three years before it ever begins. Oh? Reginald Val Johnson was, of course, Carl Winslow in Family Matters. Family Matters was one of the ABC TGIF lineup shows. Another show in that lineup was Step by Step. Oh, geez. <laughs> Ran from 1991 to 1997, and then it moved to CBS, and where it was on for about another year. But yeah, it was Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers, and they were two single parents, uh, each with three kids, who spontaneously got married after meeting one another during a vacation. Kind of a Brady Bunch situation. Yeah, updated Brady Bunch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember watching that show, too. I was a big TGIF kid. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, because um, it was Family Matters, Full House, Step by Step, and I think there was a fourth one. Well, they rotated through the years. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember some of the other big ones, which... This is just me supposing things, so uh, history may say something completely different, but I feel like the idea of TGIF and that two-hour or so block of time, mm -hmm. a block of prime time, kind of migrated and spawned the whole Thursday night TV thing. It's still a thing. Must-see TV on yeah. NBC? Yeah. The Thursday night, strong night of prime time is a force of nature for many many shows mm. and many many shows have cycled in and out of that time frame and either succeeded gloriously like friends mm. was a thursday night must-see tv show or failed which i couldn't name you any of those because they failed 
or were carried by the bigger, more successful names. I felt like that idea, that concept of a block of shows that people sat down, watched the entire block, even if they didn't enjoy the entire block, they stayed through a show they didn't enjoy necessarily because the show after it was their favorite. Mm -hmm. I feel like that kind of stemmed from TGIF. I think Sabrina the Teenage Witch might have been Ah, one of the fourth shows. Those were all shows that I watched. Yeah. And I'm not a particular fan of Full House or Family Matters. So that idea definitely was effective on me and I stayed for the whole block. One of the things I really liked about TGIF was when they would do their big crossover nights. Like there was one night in particular. I can't remember what restaurant they paired with, but it might have been McDonald's. But you go to McDonald's and they give you a pair of 3D glasses. And it's like the red blue 3D glasses. You come home for TGIF and you watch and they had a full night where all of the shows on TGIF were that red blue 3D effect and I mean it wasn't necessarily good 3D but I mean it was good enough for broadcast television in the mid to late 90s (laughs) I'm looking this up on Google because I have no freaking idea what you're talking about really yeah this is definitely a place where our age difference is evident because i have no clue what you're talking about okay it looks like it might have been in 1997 which is definitely a time i would not have been watching tv yeah i would have been a junior in high school so i would have been busy doing sports and homework and stuff Oh, um, homework on a Friday night? What a nerd. Oh, it was a Friday night? Well, then I wouldn't have been doing homework. I probably would have been asleep. <laughs> you do love to sleep. I do so love to sleep. Okay, so I'm looking at a news article from May 2nd, 1997. Sounds about right. Saying exactly what you just described. That everyone had 3D glasses and all sorts of shows were supporting it. Like uh, they showed ER, um, Chicago Hope. Third Rock from the Sun, Home Improvement, Spin City, Coach. I love that show, Coach. Uh, Drew Carey Show, Ellen, Family Matters, Step by Step, Sabrina, America's Funniest Home Videos, all supporting that 3D experience. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, Good was, memory, huh? It was a lot of fun. Made a big impression on me as a kid. Yeah. Really, I wonder really if cemented can... the idea that Red Blue 3D was just an awful, awful <laughs> technology. Back inside the building... Theo is sitting in front of a computer display, which, as we said, inexplicably still has power. And it is displaying the status of the electromagnetic lock. And it goes from being engaged to being released. And Theo, so excited, yells, it's going to go. It's going to go. And as the door loses power, he screams, yes. And the door starts to slide open at a infuriatingly slow pace for someone who's only watching this movie one minute at a time. As we hear the triumphant strains of Ode to Joy once again. Yes, which is a lovely callback. Mm -hmm. Definitely appreciated that. This scene with Ode to Joy playing. I remember we talked about when we first heard Ode to Joy in, well, our last minutes. It's a callback to our specific minutes. Nice. That worked out very nicely. Mm -hmm. I remember invoking the Olympics, that it's often used as... The backdrop to a mm, a victory montage. Yeah. And I think it's used very similarly here. This is a victorious moment for Hans and for Theo mm-hmm. and for everybody else standing there, too. And it is shown in exactly that way with the light moving because the inside of the vault has power. Yep. So the light 
moving across Theo's face. He's rising to meet the prize. Mm -hmm. And they're staring. It brought to mind the the suitcase from... Pulp Fiction. Yes. They're staring in adoration of the contents of the vault. As if something inside is just holy and angelic. And they're being bathed in a celestial light. Absolutely. (laughs) I love how... As the vault door is sliding open, we get a shot of the light passing over the room and it falls on Hans and he stands up and it falls on Theo and he's got this big old smile forming on his face. And as Hans steps towards the vault, his hair is blowing ever so slightly. Yes, I was really curious about that at first, but the more I thought of it and the more I prepped our minutes for this week, the more it made sense. Tomorrow we're going to get a look at the contents of the vault. Mm -hmm. So I think it turns out that the vault is climate controlled, which the climate control is still working, Yep. even though there's no power. So the climate control has backup, but not the door. (laughs) So the climate control is causing a breeze Mm -hmm. that's ruffling Alan Rickman's hair. So majestically. Yes. And as Theo stands there bathed in the light from the vault, he smiles and says, Merry Christmas. Yes. Because for them, it is just the best Christmas ever. I'm not sure why this year, but there is all over Facebook and social media, there is an argument back and forth about whether or not Die Hard is a Christmas movie. And honestly, I have no opinion. You have no horse in this race? I really don't. Die Hard is a great movie. I don't care if it's a Christmas movie or not. In solidarity with my group of people that I associate with, with the Minute Makers, who do feel strongly that it's a Christmas movie, I will stand in solidarity with you. Mm -hmm. But I have no real stake in this argument. Did you join the Facebook group Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo? Yes, I did. Because I've noticed a lot of posts in that group specifically links to is it a movie or not? Because everybody sees those and they instantly share it to the group and it just aggregates a lot again. And Facebook's wonky algorithms probably saw your interest in Die Hard. (laughs) Oh my gosh! And so that's why you're seeing so much of it. That's why I'm seeing so much of it. That makes perfect sense. It's like when we were working on an episode for Mad Max Minute and you searched for, was it Canned Snake? Yeah, it was Canned Snake. And then... Amazon sent you an email saying like, oh, hey, are you interested in weird meats? Yeah. Now my Amazon suggested lists all include weird meat. Yeah. Yes. It's one of those online algorithm type things. Yes. And you know, I really do love those because <laughs> I, I like it when I'm advertised things that I actually care about. Mm-hmm. And I, I really don't mind that Google is sharing all of that information. <laughs> I know it's not a great thing, but I'm kind of okay with it. You know, someday when the Google bots take over and they go around house to house and they start implanting computer chips into everyone's brains so that they can be plugged into their own version of the Matrix and Mm -hmm. we all get transported back to 1999 or whenever the Matrix movies were set, at least the robots will have an aggregated history of everything you bought and enjoyed and the opinions that you shared so that they can 
plop you into that matrix in such a way that you will be a nice little complacent battery and we'll all be fine knowing that they have all that information on us. Yeah. You know, if being a battery is inevitable, then I'm okay with being a complacent battery. I know that there is a team of guys working on the Matrix movies minute by minute, but every time I think of it, the robots in that movie took over the world and then were okay with letting the human population still exist. Like, yeah, they're all plugged into a machine and they're keeping everybody down. But at the same time, if they wanted to wipe out humanity entirely, all they'd have to do is just unplug all the people in pods because there are better ways to get battery power. (laughs) Yeah. Like, if we're talking about robot apocalypses, (laughs) the Matrix might just be the best case scenario. I suppose so, because in, like, the Terminator... The robots want to kill everybody, right? Mm-hmm. Skynet? Yeah. So, at least in The Matrix, we get to be alive. One other thing in The Matrix, before we go back to, you know, our <laughs> actual job of Die Hard, is that I think it's in the first one when Neo is being told about what's what and who's who and all this kind of stuff. He's told that this is not the first iteration of The Matrix, that they tried giving us an idyllic existence and us being human rejected it because we need conflict. That disappoints me so so much. I would love to live in an idyllic world where nothing ever went wrong and everybody had everything that they needed to be happy. I see nothing wrong with that. And I would be perfectly happy. Sign me up for that version one of the Matrix. Yes. And if that's going to be, you know, our future that we're going to get plugged in by the Google bots, I'm okay as long as you give me an idyllic existence. (laughs) Just... Remember to be careful about what you search for on Amazon because they might plop you down in a weird thing and all you have is just weird canned meats. And so you open up a tin can and there's a fried tarantula inside and you're like, oh, should not have searched that so many times. Yeah, now I'm thinking about like all the things that I've purchased. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe not so much. Yeah. It's like, it reminds me of that episode of Doctor Who. It's set in World War II era. It's one of the, where the gas mask has become fused to the child's face. Yeah, the little nanobots are yeah. trying to fix people. The nanobots are trying to fix people, but their example of a person, that they're using that information to help other humans was a little boy who died or was hurt while wearing a gas mask. Yeah. So they think that that's how he's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to help all of the other people who are hurt. And in helping them, they fuse a gas mask to their face. Yeah. That's one of the scary episodes of Doctor Who. Right up there with the angels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So hearing Theo say Merry Christmas, it made me wonder if there are any Christmases that come to mind where I received a gift that made me say, oh, Merry Christmas. And the one that instantly pops to mind is the one Christmas where the Nintendo 64 had just come out and my dad worked at Walmart at the time. And I think we're past the statute of limitations where I can talk about how he used his position to squirrel away one of the Nintendo 64s before they were all purchased. And so he brought it home and wrapped it up for us. And I know there's an online meme of a kid opening up a Nintendo 64 and screaming about it and just going completely overboard. But that Christmas, knowing the lengths that my dad went to get it, like it was a great Christmas to begin with. And then I learned what he went through to do it. And I just appreciated it all the more. And it's a pleasant Christmas memory for me. The way you told the story made it sound like he stole it. 
No. So Claire, we'll clarify, he didn't steal it. He set it aside and then purchased it. Yes, which setting it aside was explicitly against the rules. Right. They were not allowed to do that. But he does not work for Walmart anymore, so. So he's allowed to say, screw you. Nanner, nanner, boo, boo. Yeah. Okay. Are there any Christmases that I think I would have to go with my first cell phone? Mm-hmm. I grew up in the strange era where in high school, graduated in 99. So in high school, there was one person that had a cell phone. And it was one of those like big blocky things. So after high school, it was like this Christmas was maybe two years later when cell phones were becoming more and more prevalent. My dad got us all cell phones for Christmas. And it was a Nokia something or other little brick. I had that thing for so long, I could not break it even if I tried. (laughs) And I think that was... Probably, like, my best Christmas. Yeah. The one that most stands out in your mind. Absolutely. Because every Christmas is special. Every Christmas that you can spend with family and exchange gifts and loving moments and all that stuff. Every Christmas is special. But there are those Christmases that stand out in your mind. Otherwise, we wouldn't have movies like A Christmas Story. Right. (laughs) I think it's... (laughs) Maybe it's a little telling that both of our most memorable Christmases are before we were together. <laughs> Trying to think of our most memorable Christmas together. I really enjoyed the one where I think it was our first Christmas together after I got my job where I currently work. Because mm-hmm. we were in a very comfortable living position. Yes. We had a big old Christmas tree. It was bigger than the space we had available for it. So it was an artificial tree because that's the way to go. Oh. I only put the branches on half of it, and then we put it flat up against the wall, so we got to have the effect of a big, full Christmas tree without actually having it dominate our living room. Yes. and That was genius. I put the Christmas lights in a very, really just simple, but very elegant arrangement. I had access to the gutters without having to climb on a ladder, and oh, that was that was one was a lot of fun. That's the one that stands out to me. Yeah, I think it was that year that you got me the iPod that I still have. Still hasn't died yet. Nope, hasn't died yet. And you had it inscribed with Let Me Sing You to Sleep, and that was really sweet. Yeah, you never listen to music when you go to sleep, though. No, I listen to books. Yeah. (laughs) But the sentiment is there. Yeah, the sentiment is there. (laughs) There was another Christmas after we moved out of that place into our next apartment where you ordered something for me and you forgot to update the address. Uh-huh. And so you had to go to our old apartment yep. to find the package that had been delivered. Yes, that was nerve-wracking because that was a very special gift and it was quite pricey. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you could just count as a loss and right. forget about and order again. Yep. And in fact, I can see it's the right thing there. you got me sitting up on the shelf over here. Yep. It's a... What are they called? Ultimate Collector Series Lego R2-D2. Yes. With like a million pieces to it. And it's got a place of honor up on top of our bookshelf next to your old globe. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, good times. We cut outside of the Nakatomi building down to Agents Johnson and Johnson again being followed by 
Deputy Police Chief Robinson, and they are walking back to the police line away from the engineer truck. And Agent Johnson is just so pleased with himself. He is so sure that the terrorists inside are wetting themselves with fear at the moment. But poor Deputy Police Chief Robinson is just digging himself deeper and deeper into this hole with every decision he makes, and he is certain that the mayor is going to have his head on a plate. Yeah, and he deserves to. Mm -hmm. I think he has made mistakes that he's going to pay for. Mm -hmm. Yep. The final shot that we get of this minute is a little over a second of Theo entering the vault, and he goes straight for a box that's on a shelf. But we are going to put that on hold because we're going to see tomorrow what's on that shelf, what's in the box, what's in the box. But you'll have to come back for that. If you would like to hear more of us, you can find the Mad Max Minute podcast on our homepage, madmaxminute.com. Follow us on Twitter at Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. The Die Hard Minute podcast is a collaboration of Movies by Minute podcasters. Find out more about the Movies by Minute format at moviesbyminutes.com. Die Hard Minute is produced by Jim O'Kane. Our intro music is by John Stebby. Our closing theme is by Tom Geyer. You can follow Die Hard Minute on Twitter at Die Hard Minute, on Facebook at Die Hard with a Podcast Listener's Limo, and at dieHardMinute.com. Subscribe to this podcast by searching Die Hard Minute on iTunes and Google Play. And until next time... We got a big problem down here. Shut it down. Shut it down now. Tell me you got that. I got it, I got it. Hit your heart on Channel 5.